0: The UK's withdrawal from the European Union is a done deal. All that remains is assessing the fallout. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. All indications are that we're looking at a hard Brexit, a complete severing of the UK's trade and economic ties with the European Union. How that will play out in reality will become clearer over the next two years as the parties hammer out the details of the divorce. But the scenario of economic disaster for Great Britain might not come to pass if the assessment of my guest today turns out to be correct. He is John Manners Bell, founder and chief executive of Transport Intelligence. He also chairs the Logistics and Supply Chain Global Agenda Council of the World Economic Forum. We're going to talk about the UK in a post-Brexit world. Is it abandoning critical markets or embracing new and bigger ones? Has the EU been a help or hindrance to Britain's economy? What changes will we see in the country's sourcing patterns, markets and supply chains? And will other EU members follow the UK's example and walk away from the increasingly shaky coalition? Here is my conversation with John Manners Bell. John Manners-Bell, welcome to the program.
1: Hello, Robert. It's a pleasure to be with you this day.
0: Judging from comments we've heard from UK politicians recently, it sounds like the question before whether we'd have a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit, it sounds like a hard Brexit is coming. Would that be your evaluation as well?
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. That seems the way the, uh, be the way the politicians seem to be thinking at the moment. And I think that's really what most of the people in the country uh, voted for when they voted to come out of the EU. So I think the, uh, the politicians are actually fulfilling what most of the people wanted in this country.
0: That being the case, I assume that nothing really can stop it now, that Parliament stepping in, voting on it, or somehow finding a way to reverse it just isn't going to happen at this point, right? That's
1: right. It's a a done deal. We will be leaving the EU in uh, two years time or two and a half years time. And that's going to happen. I think there's an awful lot to deal with in terms of the details and exactly how it's going to happen uh, and what we're going to be left with afterwards. But the UK is leaving the EU and rejoining the rest of the world. And uh, that's a done deal.
0: It's interesting you should put it in that positive light. It's not something they're leaving. It's something they're rejoining. I, I haven't quite heard it characterized in those terms before, but that is an interesting way to put it. Uh, timetable-wise, you did say two years. That, of course, was the, uh, the schedule as laid out originally. Uh, do you believe that the enabling legislation or at least the enabling processes will get underway soon, or how long before we'll start seeing those, those things actually kick into, into gear?
1: What the uh, politicians have said is that between now and March, probably after the new year, then Article 50 is going to be triggered. And that will mean there's two years after that point to negotiate an exit deal with the EU. So the uh, the clock is, is running.
0: You say negotiate. I'm wondering, in light of the fact that a hard Brexit is in the cards, will the EU itself take a hard line with the UK and put down draconian conditions and policies in light of this?
1: I think it's going to be a tough two years of negotiation, definitely. But uh, the bottom line is, in terms of trade, that they need us more than we need them. You know, we have a trade deficit with the EU. We consume in the UK uh, large amounts of their automotive goods, their food, agricultural products, their consumer goods, which are manufactured far more than we export to them. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on the negotiators from the German and French industry to make sure that there's some sort of deal is put in place.
0: You sound like you were on the Leave side from the start. Is that the case? Uh, that's true. Yes, true
1: enough. Although I did have my doubts, uh, or it wasn't a case that I was a die-hard Brexiteer from the outset. But uh, throughout the campaign, I came around to the view that there are far more opportunities for the UK to engage with many of the developing countries around the world, you know, China and India, where most of the growth is, and also to engage with some of the you know the biggest economies. Uh, including the U.S., of course, uh, where we have some very, very strong trading links already. And so, therefore, I I saw the opportunities rather than the the risks and the threats which were being uh, issued by the people who wanted to remain.
0: I do want to hit more on the trade aspect, but let's turn for a moment, though, first to the supply chain and logistics side. What are some of the impacts you see happening there as a result of the Brexit?
1: I recently provided evidence to a House of Lords committee on this subject and one of the key areas which I was dealing with was that I don't think we need to overplay the risks too much uh, at the moment possibly between a third and fifty percent of all goods traded to and from the UK come from without from outside of the EU already. So the UK is already one of the most globalized economies in the world. Um, and if you look at us say Our automotive industry, for example, a a large amount of the uh, components which are being sourced already come from Asia or the US. Uh, We have a lot of automotive manufacturers based uh, in the UK and uh, a lot of the trade is from outside the uh, EU. So we're already managing to trade very efficiently. Supply chains reach right around the world. They're very complex, and we we managed to deal with all the customs and trade issues very slickly. So I didn't want to overstate the threats of leaving the EU because we're already trading globally at
0: the moment. To what extent have global companies to this point utilized the EU as a platform for distribution and access to the continent? Well, not
1: to a huge degree. The main European distribution centres for many of the world's global uh, manufacturers and retailers are based in the Benelux countries. They have a lot of warehouses around the, the gateway ports and the airports. And so consequently, those are the, the main distribution centres. So you wouldn't really use the UK to distribute to the, the rest of Europe. Certainly, you, you want to import through some of the, the biggest ports and airports and distribute from there. So in, in terms of, distribution and supply chains for some of the major trading companies, I I wouldn't see there going to be many, many changes.
0: It wouldn't have been for lack of trying on the part of various regions of the UK. In years past, we've seen, for instance, attempts by certain regions like Devon and Cornwall, and even surprisingly Wales, I have heard, to attempt to position themselves as the door to the greater Europe. I'm assuming that those efforts really didn't pay off in the long run.
1: Well, as I'm sure you're very well aware, I mean, the, the main trend within the shipping industry has been to much larger, larger vessels. And there are only a few ports in Europe who are able to take the very large uh, 20,000 uh, plus TEU vessels. Uh, and those tend to be Rotterdam. Antwerp, Hamburg, for example. I mean, there are some in uh, Southeast England as well, and South uh, South England, who do, can take those vessels. But the majority of them are calling at those big European ports.
0: Sure stuff coming in from Asia and the United States, perhaps. But some of these regions that were looking to position themselves as distribution centers from U- the UK were hoping to do so by truck and train. The uh, construction of the t- of the tunnel was in their minds a big opportunity, and even barring that, they used to brag about how close they were to the ferries. And I thought, okay, fine, they, they saw themselves because the distances are not that great in Europe. But again, in that case, in surface transportation, that doesn't sound like it's paid off in a big way.
1: I don't think so. Not in terms of the big picture we're looking at here. Certainly, there will be some marginal gains and uh, there's been a lot of investment in different ports around the, the UK to try and en- encourage this uh, the idea of port based logistics. Uh, and there is a lot to say for that to actually diminish the amount of volume of trade which is going by by road. Yeah, there there have been some some big success stories, but in the big picture, we're going to see most uh, uh, global trade consolidated around the main shipping hubs.
0: How many UK ports, for that matter, are configured properly, both in terms of water depth and berth length and area for container storage, for the biggest container ships on the water today?
1: Oh, off the top of my head, I, I'm guessing there's going to be about five or, or so who, who can deal with the, 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 biggest, uh, the biggest ships, and those, most of those will be either on the south coast or on, on the east coast uh, of the UK. There is uh, a problem that um, many shipping lines obviously want to reduce the number of calls, and so therefore there has been this trend to the consolidation around some of the main European ports, especially when those ports are very close to the biggest economic centre of uh, the Heartland of Europe, so to speak, you know, around in the big consumer markets of Germany and, and France and the Benelux countries.
0: I'm trying to think in my mind what those ports would be. I can think maybe Felixstowe. Um, what else would be a port that would be big enough to accommodate an 18,000 TEU container ship in the UK?
1: well there 's uh, London gateway is the uh, is the the biggest new development uh, that we 've seen and it's it 's hugely impressive. There are a number of ports and there 's been quite a considerable amount of investment uh, in those ports uh, as well and that will be good investment I, I think because if there are any uh, barriers which are put up when the UK leaves the EU that may well encourage shipping lines to call directly at some of the, the UK ports. So I think, um, I think it's, it's been money well spent and it will ensure that we retain these direct calls.
0: Now you referenced briefly the automotive industry. I'm wondering which sectors you believe will be most affected by the Brexit from the standpoint once again of supply chain and logistics and distribution strategies.
1: Well, I think, yes, automotive will certainly be impacted. But I think the biggest impact will be to the food manufacturing sector. Uh, at the moment, uh, due to the, uh, the barriers which are thrown up around the EU, it's quite expensive to buy food from outside of the EU as a way of supporting the French and German uh, Italian farmers, for example. So there are considerable uh, trade barriers in place in terms of tari- uh, tariffs, but also non-tariff barriers. Uh, so consequently, once we leave the EU, we're going to be able to trade on, on the global market where prices could be, say, up to 20, 25 percent less than we're paying at the moment. So consequently, uh, the major retailers and, the, and um, some of the, uh, the food manufacturers are going to be changing their sourcing patterns. They're going to be looking at buying more from the U.S., more from Latin America and also uh, Asia in particular. So we're going to see supply chains move from a regional basis to very, one which is very much more intercontinental, which is definitely going to support uh, the, the shipping lines and also some of the air cargo operators. We'll be able to trade more directly with many of the African countries where perishable goods are, are an important commodity for them.
0: It sounds like you're implying that the membership in the EU up to this point for the UK has actually been a barrier or a hamper to full realization of trade with some of, as you point out, the growing Asian economies of China and India, for instance. Is that the case?
1: Absolutely. That is the case. And although the EU have said that uh, they are you know, looking to, to build partnerships, uh, free trade agreements with many of these countries. They've pretty been unable to over the last few years. It takes a very long time for, for them to, to build these free trade agreements. And so consequently, there have been these barriers to, uh, to global trade, which I think will be taken away when the UK leaves the EU.
0: Now, the U.K. economy is is definitely strong relative to most EU or most European or continental economies. I'm wondering, is that continuing and what are the projections for U.K. economic performance in in the coming year or two? The
1: UK has been uh, certainly helped indirectly already by the vote that we had back in the summer due to its impact on the currency. The uh, sterling has dropped in value by 10 to 15 percent, I think now, which makes uh, goods produced in the UK much more competitive on the world market. Actually, the uh, manufacturing is the most developed countries uh, is, is quite a small part of our overall economy now the service sector is really much more important and the finance and uh, city is, uh, is far more important to the UK economy as, as a whole and it's, a, it's rather, rather really early days I think to, to say whether it's going to be a good thing or bad thing but certainly in terms of, of the physical movement of goods we're seeing far more exports than there were before the referendum vote.
0: I'm wondering if the UK has experienced in the last couple of decades the same economic trend as the US has in terms of offshore outsource manufacturing. We've sent, as you know, of course, much of our manufacturing to China, for instance, and now we're hearing that at least a a healthy portion of that, because of rising wages in China and and logistics uh, considerations, is coming back, if not to the United States, at least to the Western Hemisphere. Are we seeing any reshoring or rethinking of manufacturing locations serving UK markets in the same way? And if so, how is that playing out?
1: Well, it was exactly the same trend. There has been a huge amount of unbundling and outsourcing of manufacturing processes over the last two decades, certainly to Asia, especially to China, but some of the the lower cost countries in the region now from Vietnam and in Laos, for example. So, yes, we've seen that that trend. Now, there has been a lot of talk about near sourcing of uh, good production to the UK again, but there's been very little evidence of it actually happening. Um, Maybe part of the The issue and the difference between the U.K. and the U.S. is the U.S. obviously has Mexico uh, on on your southern border, which is a very good uh, source of low cost labor. Uh, we, we don't have so much low-cost labour in close proximity. So you're looking, if you're moving goods back to closer to the uh, EU, you're looking at uh, maybe Turkey or North Africa or maybe Southeast uh, Europe as potential uh, locations for your manufacturing. But uh, I think um, it's something that uh, we, everyone's keeping a very close eye on, but there's, there's very little hard evidence of it occurring at the moment.
0: Poland, uh, Eastern Europe, also possibilities? Yes, but we, we saw
1: that during the early 2000s, that there, there was a, a, a lot of uh, relocation of production out to Eastern Europe. But Eastern Europe has become a lot more expensive over the last uh, decade. Uh, partly a success story, actually, for, for the EU, the huge amount of investment that's gone into EU transportation networks uh, integrating these Eastern European countries Uh, into the overall EU market. So that's that's been a big success for the EU. But one of the upshots of that has been that uh, uh, prices have risen, labour costs have risen, uh, standards of living have gone up. Uh, And so consequently, it's not such a good uh, location now if you're looking at low-cost manufacturing.
0: Scotland voted Remain. Is there any fear that the Brexit and the decision of the U.K. to leave the EU will rekindle Scottish nationalism and lead to another vote and perhaps the ev- eventual breaking up of the U.K.?
1: Well, I think possibly there, there is uh, certainly fears about it, whether it will come to anything or not uh, is another matter. There are a lot of political and economic factors in play here, not least, for example, the cost of oil on the global market. And now most of uh, Scotland's economy, or a large proportion of Scotland's economy, is based on the oil industry. And obviously, with the collapse of the oil price, that's happened since the last referendum in Scotland. Uh, And so, consequently, Scotland is in a far worse position now than it was at the time of the, the referendum on whether they should stay in the UK. But having said, that it's down to the present government to, to make the case of why the UK should stay together and why we should uh, leave the EU and the role of a confident and assertive UK on, on the world market uh, and in the world in terms of not only in terms of economy but also in terms of foreign affairs and if, if they are able to make that argument then they, they should be able to take the whole of the country along.
0: The other side of the coin, of course, is the question of whether the EU itself will hold together. There are nascent political movements within various countries to follow the example of the UK. What are you seeing there in terms of the possibility that there might be further defections?
1: I think that uh, there may well be a growing discontent and uh, there's always been a discontent in many parts of the EU since the uh, Great Recession of 2008-2009. Obviously, there are some countries, particularly, say, Greece. Uh, but others such as Portugal and, and Italy, who haven't done uh, very well since that, that time. And there's uh, a lot of resentment aimed uh, probably, well, I, I don't know whether it's rightly or wrongly, but uh, certainly a lot of anger aimed at uh, the Germans in particular and the role that they've played. And unfortunately for these countries, they are all part of the, e, of the euro. And so consequently, they don't have the flexibility. They can't see what's happened in the uh, in the U.K., where the sterling has fallen by 15 they, they, percent they can't actually experience that themselves because they're tied into the euro so they have very few options in terms of their economic growth so they've they've had to adopt these uh, austerity measures which have been forced upon, upon them by the the major european economies and of course there is this discontent so uh, i do see that uh, that growing throughout the rest of Europe, I, for one, certainly wouldn't want to see the rest of Europe breaking uh, breaking up, because I think it has brought so many benefits in in terms of standards of living um, and cultural benefits as well. So, in um, personally, I don't. say uh, that's not an aim a which I would like to see fulfilled. But on the other hand, I can very much sympathise with people who see who see that uh, greater flexibility uh, would allow their economies to flourish.
0: As the U.K. pursues its newfound independence and faces the challenges that go along with that, are there any models for it to follow? It doesn't seem like there's too many examples of the past of, like, gigantic uh, trade unions or economic unions breaking up and companies going their own way. Can it draw on any past experiences, or is it really just sort of moving ahead in the dark and just doing the best it can based on that?
1: Yeah, I I can't think of uh, any examples. I think you're right there. There are other models which can be adopted, though, looking forward in terms of other countries' uh, relationships with the EU. So I think that's something that uh, a lot of people are looking at and analysing the relationship, for example, of, of Norway or Switzerland, who are not EU members with the EU. The relationship which Turkey has. Turkey, for example, is part of the EU customs area. but but is not part of the EU. And then, of course, there are uh, free trade agreements which have been developed, for example, Canada. uh, South Korea is one which uh, I've looked at in reasonable detail. And it's probably the South Korean free trade agreement is is going to be the pattern which uh, the UK is going to follow.
0: What lessons can we take away from this experience, which really is an unhappy experience, an experiment that did not go well for the UK's participation Going forward in future economic unions and trade unions, what might we take from this to avoid future types of of problems?
1: I think it's, uh, the, the vote came about due to a perceived lack of democracy. And I think that's very important for technocrats, bureaucrats, whatever you might like to call them, politicians who are in power but actually forgets that they are in power due to the will of the people. And I think that's uh, a lot of people in this country felt they were being uh, left behind, that they had no voice, and really that decisions were being made on their behalf both in London, but but largely in in Brussels, uh, which meant that there were impacts on their day to day life, whether that was the, the jobs or their or their social lives, which they had absolutely no control over. So having been given a vote, they were given these levels of, of, of freedom and they decided that they, they wanted them back. And that's going to be really the challenge for the, the new set of uh, the new government. We've got the new set of politicians in London to be able to put together to build a future for people where they feel that they can have their voice back, that their vote actually counts for something uh, and their concerns are taken into account. So it was very much a, a political debate uh, rather than an economic one.
0: It's going to be very interesting to see how the UK functions as it forges this path forward. But uh, in the meantime, John Manners Bell, I want to thank you so much for sharing your insights with us on the impact of the Brexit on economy, on trade, on supply chain, and logistics. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Robert. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was my conversation with John Manners-Bell of Transport Intelligence, talking about the future of the U.K. after splitting off from the single European market. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at scbrain.